You're tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The Navy announced it's setting up a clinic to deal with ongoing health issues related to the fuel exposure for families hooked up to the Navy's water system. HPR Sabrina Bowden joins us this morning with the latest. Good morning, Catherine. So as you said, one year after thousands of gallons of fuel leaked into the Navy's water system, the Navy and the Defense Health Agency plan to set up a Red Hill Clinic that will address potential long-term health issues that may be associated with the spills. Uh, Dr. Jennifer Esperitu is the Chief of Public Health at Tripler Army Medical Center, and she's also the Acting Interim Public Health Expert of the region's DHA. My family and I live in the local community, and my children attend a Honolulu school, which is affected by the water incident. So I'm not only sympathetic to your cause and empathetic to this cause, this affects me and my family. The DRIP, or Defense Health Agency Region Indo-Pacific, is committed to the health and safety of our patients. So we're establishing the Red Hill Clinic, which is a safe place where our dedicated care teams will work with our patients to document what is happening to them and together determine what the best path forward is for them and their family's health care. So the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease Registry did a self-reported study, and some issues reported included skin rashes, gastrointestinal issues, as well as neurological conditions. But Esperitu was uh, cautious to link long-term health issues and the consumption or use of that lace-filled water last year because she said there just aren't enough studies into JP5 jet fuel's lingering effects. So, man, we see patients who have been exposed to fuel in the water, and we see patients who have medical complaints. Those two things are, are assumed to be true. But what we have not found is an association between the two, and we've definitely not found a causative association. So, so do they say when they're going to start this clinic? There's no timeline. She didn't have any information about staffing or where exactly it would even be, like hours or what clinic it would be based out of. Um, But she did say that it'll act as a place where military families can get help. And she said that she envisions a primary care team with potential specialists and other aftercare avenues. People are absolutely having health care problems. That I believe. And people deserve to be seen. That I believe with all my heart. Whether the two are connected, I, I can't, we can't make that leap now. But what we want to happen is for people to come in so we can see them, find out what's happening to them, and work them up thoroughly so that there is a connection, we can pursue it. Did they say that they're just being overrun at Tripler or, you know, people have long waits to get in to see doctors? Well, she was talking about how she just knows that there are people who are seeking outside care and she wants there to be a place like in the military that people can go to to get the help for these primary care issues or any sort of lingering claims that they have. So maybe they're just tired of waiting and want to be seen and going Mm -hmm. elsewhere and there's a lot of people who are who have after the fact have asked to get reimbursed for these health issues or there's also um filings in court of people who are claiming that they have these health issues so i think it is to try to also get like the monitoring so that they can sort of understand the issues a little bit better interesting and do they talk about kind of where we're at on the uh defueling timelines? Yeah, of course. So during that press conference Monday, Joint Task Force Red Hill Commander Rear Admiral John Wade reiterated his commitment to working with the State Department of Health and the EPA, as well as with community members. We are actively engaged with both the EPA and the Department of Health, answering questions, uh, going back and forth so that we can get the defueling plan approved. It's not yet approved. If you remember the unpacking that we accomplished a couple of weeks ago, it's essentially the same process, but just on a larger scale. We went back and forth with the EPA and the Department of Health. They asked questions. We answered those. They had more. They wanted to get eyes on our remediation efforts and and observe our drills and our training. So we'll do that. My commitment is that I and my team will work in partnership with these regulators to try to shorten the timeline. I'm on record by saying that every day that the fuel sits above the aquifer is a risk to the people of Hawaii, our community, and the environment. So within federal and state law, 
I intend to work with these regulators to look at first the repair enhancements and modification plan and say, what can we do faster? What can we apply new technology? Can we do things in parallel, vice and series? Uh, are there currently planned jobs that can be reduced in scope and reduce that timeline, but still maintain the proper safety parameters established by statute? Then another way that we could potentially save time is working with the Department of Defense, U.S. Indo-Pacific Command, and the Defense Logistics Agency, and then all services here on island to properly sequence the defueling while also integrating the fueling operations that we need to do to continue our training and our operations. This needs to hum like a fine Swiss watch. And the goal is still for defueling to be wrapped by June 2024, which is sooner than what was initially projected. So in June, when the defueling plan was initially submitted, it was an eight-month defueling plan from when all the repairs were done, everything was ready to go, and then to complete defueling eight months. The first supplement, that timeline was reduced to five months, and then in the second supplement, it was reduced to four months. So I have challenged my team and to work with all the stakeholders to reduce that timeline even more, but again, safety over speed. Did he mention anything specifically about the repairs to the pipeline? He didn't, I don't remember, um, but he did speak about how he was trying to make things go as fast as possible, working with the DOD, with the Navy, um, and everybody else. Okay, so it's November, almost the end of November. Mm -hmm. What's up for next month? So in, de in December, the Navy is working on two different things. First, they're planning to submit a fuller version of the closure assessment, which is the report that was released earlier this year that suggested that the Navy would like to keep the Red Hill tanks in place and repurpose them for non-fuel reuse. And second, they are planning a town hall to discuss defueling and closure of Red Hill with the public. Okay, so sometime in December. Sometime in December, I don't believe they have a date yet. All right, well, thank you. Oh, we appreciate you, uh, uh, you know, keeping up uh, with these latest developments. Thank you. We've been speaking with uh, HPR Sabrina Bowden. Look for her stories on hawaiipublicradio.org. Over the past year, we've heard from military families dealing with displacement because of fuel-contaminated water. One in particular was a Navy wife who worried for her infant child and her pets. Her family had just arrived on island a few months before the fuel contaminated her drinking water. We checked in on them again just as they were on the move to a new duty station. She spent this weekend marking the one-year anniversary in a hotel, but this time in another state. Uh, Bianca reflected on what was a traumatic time in the islands and her fears for her infant daughter. We first met her family during a town hall meeting with Navy Secretary Carlos de Toro, who assured the military servicemen and women that they would take care of their health needs. It's just crazy just looking back. I think she was about maybe three months was when the whole water thing happened, and I was exclusively pumping, and I was... I was so scared because I didn't want her bottles to be contaminated or for her to have any sort of, you know, residue in her bottles. So at first I was super freaked out. And then then it was just, you know, once they said the water was clear, just still being very scared of the water. But then eventually after a few months, uh, I was like, oh, well, you know, what am I going to do? I can't just you know, use bottled water to cook all the time and wash everything all the time. So I kind of started easing off of it. And I guess I kind of just told myself not to think about it anymore. It was always in the back of my head. But when the water main broke, it kind of brought back all those feelings again of distrust. And I was like, oh, my God, like, it's happening all over again. And we didn't have water for about a week. And you know, I didn't, I wasn't able to shower and brush my teeth at home, and I was just stressed out all over again. I mean, at this point, my daughter is actually eating, you know, solids and stuff, so whenever I feed her, she makes a big mess. I can't just, like, rinse her off, 
So I would have to use like baby wipes or bottled water to bathe her. And that was just so much fun (laughs) heating, you know, heating it up and then, you know, just kind of pouring it on her. But now we're here and, you know, I, I still kind of don't trust tap water in general, but it is nice that we're away from that now. Well, at the time, you know, your daughter, I think, also contracted that respiratory syndrome that everybody here is now going through. And, you know, that was very scary. Yeah, she was hospitalized and she was put on oxygen because she got bronchiolitis from it. And at the time, I wasn't even thinking about it. But it was it was right when it started too because I think what had happened was we went over to a friend's house to go bathe and wash clothes and wash bottles and another family that was there their children had just gotten over it but I think they were still contagious Um, and at the time I should have advocated and been like I don't want her you know being touched or held but the girl who lived there she took her from me and she gave her to the daughter of the other family and she was holding her. She's like, oh, look, it's a baby. Look how cute. And she was touching her face and touching her hands. And inside I was like, oh, my gosh, like I want to say something. But because, you know, I was allowed to go into somebody else's home and use their water, I kind of just let it happen. But then she got really sick. Oh, it's like I'm not, I'm not going to be like, you know, if I don't like something, I'm going to say something right then and there. Now you're in another state, you know, and you can put this behind you, you know, as far as the daily hassles of dealing with contaminated water or a broken water main, you know, but at the time you also had pets. Yeah, I mean, my dog, one of them, the larger one, she had hurt her leg at the time, like on Thanksgiving, which a few days before we had found out about the water situation. So I had to go back and forth between the hotel and the home because she wasn't able to walk just in general. I mean, she was able to kind of, you know, go out and do her business, but she wasn't able to walk very far. So I wasn't able to just bring her with me to the hotel and stay there. It was like going, you know, over from Pearl Harbor area to Waikiki, Kalakaua every single day. And that was a lot of work. For a time there, I think your husband was deployed. So you were just on your own, you know, you need to depend on friends that you made in the short time that you were here? The whole thing with the hotel and stuff, I mostly just went over there by myself, but I had to enroll myself in some, like, baby classes because at the time I really didn't know anybody. Mm So luckily I got to meet some mom friends, and we hung out every now and then, but I I was alone a lot. It's tough when you don't have a support system, you know, during a crisis. Yeah, it it is difficult. I know that they had talked about tracking the health of nursing moms and young children. Have you gotten any update there? No, not at all. I didn't even know that they were doing any sort of like database for that because I know that the secretary of the Navy. Yes, Carlos Toro. I know he had mentioned he was going to set something up and then I didn't hear anything back and I called his office and tried to get some more information. I got a call from a lieutenant, but they told me, you know, as far as they knew, there shouldn't have been any sort of situation. The only advice they told me was to just, if if I felt like it, I could throw away the bottles, you know, if I didn't feel confident in it. But that just boiling it should have been good enough. Then after that, I didn't hear anything else. What are your thoughts about, you know, your daughter's health at this point going forward? I mean, hopefully the exposure was minimal, was for a short time, but you do worry. Of course. I mean, even after they said the water was safe, I never truly felt like it was. I'm just hoping that this isn't another Camp Lejeune situation where, you know, right now nothing is happening. But as you get older, that's when you kind of start seeing all these medical complications. And I just would feel so guilty knowing that, you know, we were just at the wrong place, you know, while she was so young. And that now she has issues. I mean, hopefully that does not happen, but that's just something I think about. I probably shouldn't be thinking about it. (laughs) You know, you can't help but think about those kinds of things. Like when you see like the, if you were in Camp Lejeune during these times, you know, call our office so that you can get financial compensation, you know, and it's the same kind of situation. So 
how could you be told that it's nothing to worry about, you know, and then things like that. But I mean, that was a longer exposure. Right. Anything else that you want to share with us just about, you know, the fact that it's going to be a while before they defuel the facility and shut it down? A lot of environmental groups are worried. They just want the Navy to hurry up and move up the timeline if they can. Yeah, I mean, I feel like they definitely should. I don't really have anything else to share um, besides just, you know, try to think positive And if you can take any sort of measures to kind of limit your exposure, definitely do it. You know, but at the end of the day, we kind of have to just trust that they're working in our best interest and that the decisions that they make or, you know, the announcements they make, they're actually going through all the steps to make sure that it is safe for yeah. the family. That was Bianca, a military spouse whose story we've been sharing over the past year. She will spend the holidays at a new duty station far away from the problems of Red Hill, but her fears about the exposure won't be as easy to set aside. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. For today's Backyard Quiz, we're looking at a famous writer's ties to Hawaii. Herman Melville was widely considered one of the most significant American authors of the 19th century. Melville's most important novel, Moby Dick, is part of the literary canon, a group of ever-changing texts that define our cultural values and norms. Melville based his knowledge on firsthand experience. He spent five years working on merchant and whaling ships. During this era, whale blubber was used for everything from perfume to lantern oil and the animal's bones were made into women's corsets. Moby Dick is the tale of what unfolds on a whaling ship and the dynamic between the captain of the ship and his obsession with the white whale. It's been cited by many scholars as a commentary on, Mer on American ethics and racial trauma. Melville's novel also was shaped by his time living in both Lahaina and Honolulu. Today's bad Backyard Quiz asks, what was one of two jobs that Melville held while he was in Hawaii? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable HBR tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits that help to strengthen the community and help underserved families, such as Hawaii Literacy. NareetHawaii.com. Reality Check Today has a troubling story about a foster family that's been in the headlines. Honolulu Civil Beat Investigations Editor John Hill joins us today. Good morning, John. Hi, Catherine. So, gosh, you have been doing uh, many stories on the uh, Hawaii Child Welfare Services uh, Department, but your story today, oh, my gosh, you makes your, your heart just hurt. It really does, yeah, because these kids had um, already been traumatized by being in households where there was um, alleged abuse or neglect and placed in a foster home and, and then apparently at least 
some of them um, experienced more abuse and neglect there. So tell us about this family uh, on the Big Island there. Well, so this was a couple, um, Yvonne and Paul Cayetano um, in Hilo, who took in foster children. I didn't get um, the exact dates of when they became foster parents. CWS, uh, the state's child welfare services, wouldn't tell me that. But for at least 10 years, they were taking in children. They took in five foster children, and then they adopted those, uh, those children. And the state has a limit of five foster children at one time. So once they adopted those five, they were able to take in five more foster children. And they were known in the community uh, for for their work with foster children and their uh, opening their doors to foster children. But then things started to unravel in 2018. There was a, one of the children was returned to their biological family and reported that they had been sexually abused by Paul Cayetano. And then later that year, actually just a few months after that, it turned out that Yvonne Cayetano had been involved in a, a prescription drug ring. And, and at that time, at, at the time of the initial allegations involving Paul Cayetano, I believe that all 10 children were removed from the household. So this uh, drug ring, I mean, your story says that uh, some of those children, um, you know, were made to take part uh in sifting the what the drugs or or you know the money that's right the federal case against Yvonne Cayetano she was the office manager in a uh, medical clinic of a doctor who was 80 years old at the time Ernest Bade um, he was later found um, unfit for to face trial because of uh, I, I think suffering from dementia and she was the office manager there and the federal indictment laid out the, the scheme um, and part of it was that they had accumulated a lot of um, opioids and, and narcotics through sort of bogus prescriptions and then customers would come by the Cayetano household and the foster child was forced to take part in this scheme by counting out the pills, putting them in an envelope, going and delivering them to people who came by in cars, collecting the money and if, if she counted the pills wrong or she counted the money wrong, according to the federal indictment, she, she would receive uh, at least verbal abuse and sometimes physical abuse. I mean, that's just stunning, uh, you know, to think that these children were, were being used in that way. It is. It is stunning. Um, the, 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 there's a real contrast uh, between, I think, the way they were perceived in the community, because when Yvonne Cayetano was sentenced to five years, in federal prison, there were, um, I would say, uh, a couple of dozen uh, testaments to her generosity of spirit and taking in all these children. Uh, but the children themselves, one of whom I spoke to, had a much different view of what was going on in that household. And, you know, you end your story, I think, with a quote from her, you know, talking about what that they're just starting now to, to give them a dose of, of what they gave those poor children. That's right. That's exactly, uh, you know, the way she feels about it um, when I spoke to her. And you've been doing a number of stories, you know, about the child wel- welfare system. Um, what's your takeaway after, after doing all this digging? I, I think my main takeaway is that um, the Hawaii does not, the Hawaii Child Welfare Services in general does not seek a court order before taking away someone's child. And we are in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, the federal Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, and a number of opinions by the Ninth Circuit have made it very clear that you can only take away someone's children if you have evidence of uh, immediate danger to them. You think that they're about to be injured, and otherwise um, you should get a court order. And in many of the other jurisdictions that I surveyed, you can get a court order in a matter of hours, if not less. But in Hawaii, the standard operating procedure is to take the children without a court order. And it may sound like a technicality, but it's really not because a judge is another level of scrutiny. Um, someone who is balancing what the, what the state is saying versus what the parents may be saying and, and coming to a conclusion about whether the child should be removed. And for some reason that I still don't fully understand, 
um, Hawaii's uh, child welfare services does not seek court orders in, in general. I think it's 85 percent of cases they do not seek court orders when remo- removing children. Well, that's kind of a head-scratcher, but uh, we thank you for doing these stories and bringing them to light. But thank you so much, John. Well, thank you, Catherine. That was Honolulu Civil Beat Investigations Editor John Hill with today's Reality Check. Uh, Read his stories uh, online at civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company serving the island since 2005, committed to providing personal service to each customer, featuring a locally-based customer care team. Learn more at Mobi.com. Today on The Daily, the triple threat this winter of RSV, the flu, and COVID, what some doctors are calling a triple-demic. I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Beginning this afternoon at 1.30. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Aloha Air Cargo, committed to connecting the Hawaiian Islands by providing inter-island shipping with cargo services, including Aloha Next Flight Out and Aloha Standard Overnight. AlohaAirCargo.com. The paramedic who was burned in an ambulance fire three months ago has been discharged from the hospital. His boss, Honolulu Emergency Medical Services Director Dr. Jim Ireland, says he is thankful that Jeff Wilkinson is home for the holidays to continue his healing from his injuries after that tragic incident. This is a busy time of year, but we can't help but reflect on the many challenges we face during the pandemic as we navigate new ones. Here's Dr. Ireland. After quite a while in the hospital, Jeff was discharged, oh, maybe maybe it's two weeks or so now. So he is home and recovering, still has some recovery to do, but definitely improving. So we're super grateful about that. We know that you folks are there for us when we call 911. So we certainly appreciate uh, efforts and send our good thoughts his way. Thank you. And as you look back, you know, on this time, I mean, it's been tough, you know, between COVID, you've had to deal with uh, infant respiratory syndrome, an uptick in those cases. What can you share with our listeners about how we're doing going into the holiday season? Well, first of all, our departments, EMS, CORE, Ocean Safety, all of them are working harder than ever. And I appreciate all what they're doing for us and for the community. With respect to EMS, call volume is at record highs. And What we're noticing is, you know, COVID is almost gone, but not quite. There are still calls for COVID every day, but we're also seeing about double the number of calls we normally get for pediatric patients in respiratory distress. So we think that's from RSV. So we're running over 100 calls a month now with those type of calls. So that's averaging to, you know, anywhere from one to three a day for the pediatric respiratory calls. There's been a spike in flu cases. Influenza now is starting to spread. What happened is, you know, we're all so happy that COVID is almost behind us. We've all taken our masks off and kind of behaving like we used to behave and getting together in parties and crowds. But that's how respiratory viruses spread, whether it be COVID, flu, or RSV. So we're seeing all those cases. The tourists are back. We know people are having fun out there because they've been cooped up for two years. So more people are enjoying, you know, hiking and being in the ocean. But that generates calls because unfortunately, sometimes people get hurt when they're hiking or in the ocean. And then there's all the normal calls where people, you know, get pneumonia and asthma and heart attacks and strokes. And so all those calls are out there. And, And then, and I don't know why, but maybe people are just more in a hurry or they're trying to do things, but the car accidents are up. And I think traffic fatalities are up for this year, you know, compared to last year. And so there's just a lot going on in kind of the emergency world. They're keeping up, but really it is taxing our folks. You know, again, they just have all my, my thanks, and, and I just really appreciate what they're doing for us, you know, for everybody. Well, you know, we did just interview a special agent with the uh, DEA, and, and he was trying to aware, uh, raise the awareness in the community about fentanyl. And we know that you've had to deal with a number of uh, fentanyl calls, you know, overdoses uh, recently. Anything you can share on that front? I didn't even mention the fentanyl when I just rattled off all those other kinds of calls. And yes, that is also contributing to our call volume. Now, 
maybe three, four weeks ago, we had a big scare when we had five deaths within about a six-day period. And, you know, we were very, very worried. Um, the police and the DEA are doing their part from the, you know, the criminality side and the drug dealing. But fentanyl has come into our community. And for people who don't know what fentanyl is, it's a synthetic uh, narcotic. So like heroin or oxycodone or oxycontin or morphine, those are all examples of um, narcotics. And fentanyl is used in hospitals and on the ambulance to control pain. It's used in cancer patients. We carry fentanyl on the ambulance. But on the ambulance and in the medical setting, it's injected in the vein in very controlled amounts, and, and we know what we're giving people, and it's, and it's safe. But in illegally manufactured fentanyl, it's put into a pill form, and, and in drug labs, the dosing is very suspect. And some people may be getting way more than they think they're getting. They take the pill, and they don't wake up. They quit breathing. They die. So we're, you know, in the past, let's say six months or a year ago, we might go on one overdose a week or a couple a week, and certainly hardly any fentanyl. We just didn't see that. And our crews today are going on anywhere from, you know, one to three overdoses a day with fentanyl specifically. I mean, there's sometimes where they go on a call and within the same house or within the same homeless community or within the same group, they've found more than one person overdosed. You know, they get a call for one person and then they, while they're there, they find another person who, who may not be breathing. And so that's contributed to the call volume, and we're very concerned about that as well. And I understand that the Big Island is soon to get, you know, their supply of uh, Narcan, you know, to help out uh, with these drug overdose cases because, you know, they're, they're seeing that rise over there on that island as well. Yes, and, you know, the ambulances for, uh, you know, I started on the ambulance in 1987, and we've always had Narcan on the ambulance, but it was in the injectable form where you had to start an IV and, you know, you had to be a paramedic and you'd push it in somebody's vein who'd, who'd overdosed. But over the last few years, this other type has come out where you can squirt it up their nose and it's a very easily deplo deployable medication. And if you take fentanyl, when, excuse me, when you take Narcan and if you don't need it, it's not going to hurt you. So if I sprayed some Narcan up your nose right now, it would be irritating. It'd be like a saline spray, but it wouldn't hurt you. You wouldn't have any ill effects. So because of that, Narcan has been widely distributed in the public. And so while the ambulances and the paramedics have used the IV form, we're also giving them the nasal form, particularly if they get exposed to Narcan at a scene and have to give it to themselves. But we are seeing now overdose cases where Narcan has been distributed to the friends or the family of the person who's abusing narcotics and or fentanyl. And they actually resuscitate the patient themselves before we get there, which is good. But it's also now being carried by the Honolulu Police Department and it's soon to be carried by the Honolulu Fire Department. So we are getting it more out into the community, so it's not just on the ambulances, because Narcan reverses the effects of fentanyl or any narcotic and allows people to wake up and start breathing again when they've overdosed. Lots to uh, unpack here with all these challenges that our um, paramedics and uh, EMTs have to deal with on a daily basis. You know, I know I just saw something about a call for, for blood. Our blood supply is, should be stronger, particularly going into this holiday season. But, you know, we know the holiday season uh, can be tougher for those with mental health issues. And so that's a challenge as well. It is. And we also get those calls for people who are feeling depressed, who, who are maybe had been on medications before for some mental illness and are now not taking them, whether that's by their own choice or, or financial constraints. And we definitely know there's an increase in depression and, and even suicidality during the holidays. We see it in EMS, you know, people get sad about their situation or their families or what they may be missing or feel they're missing in life. And that's why, you know, these hotlines and, and peer support and, and suicide prevention hotlines are very important because, you know, you can see a better day and things can get better, but sometimes people can't see that tomorrow. And um, they do things that are very drastic and sad, and you know, EMS responds to these. But it, it is a, it's a happy time of year for many, but it's also a very sad time for some. Well, what are you most thankful for this season? A lot of things. You know, obviously my, my, my family and my loved ones and my friends and everybody around me, you know, for this department and just all the good work that people do. You know, we have a great mayor who's very supportive of us. We have new energy going into the governor's office with the new governor and, and whatever team uh, they put together. You know, and, and this COVID, which has been so hard on so many people for many reasons, illness, lives lost, economic issues, restrictions, social isolation, it's not behind us, but it's almost behind us, and maybe as much as it ever will be. And I'm just, I think a lot of people are just glad to be 
you know, pretty much done with that. Well, I'm still wearing my mask. You just want to be careful. Uh, well, the good news is that's going to protect you against the flu. Yes. And I'm seeing so much flu around me now. I'm thinking mm-hmm. about putting mine back on. You know, I got COVID finally in, in June of this year, and I'd taken care of COVID patients. I was around it. People were coughing in my face, but I wore an N95 mask through the whole pandemic, and it protected me. And I let my guard down. I had a meeting in June with someone. We were six feet apart, and he didn't have a mask. I didn't have a mask. The next day, he said, hey, you know, sorry, but I'm positive for COVID. And a couple days later, I turned positive. Because I was fully boosted, I I felt like I'd had a little cold for two or three days. And I felt very blessed to not have got it uh, worse. But it was, again, after I'd been fully vaccinated and boosted. And and I think eventually everyone will get it if you let your guard down. But if you're vaccinated and boosted, Mm -hmm. you have the best chance of having a mild form of it. We can be thankful there are vaccines and and treatments because a couple of years ago we didn't have that and it was a very scary time. It was and I remember meeting with the lieutenant governor and even Dr. Miskovich and we would kind of have this uh, huddle and there's some other health professionals with us and this is the very first month or two. So it was a very trying time on trying to figure out what to do and were we getting the best advice from the CDC and the federal government And, and in my opinion in retrospect we weren't getting always the best advice from them, especially not to wear a mask. I mean, that in retrospect was a terrible idea. With all this stuff on Twitter now, I'm not a big Twitter person. You know, I don't do a lot of stuff on Twitter. But every now and then I'll put out a tweet and, I, and I'd have to review my, my log there on Twitter. But in early January of, of whatever year that was, 19, I did make a note of this unusual respiratory virus causing these symptoms in Wuhan, China. And we should watch out for that. And, and, you know, these little alerts I'd put out, you know, maybe two or three times a year on different viruses, uh, oftentimes from Africa, Ebola, or these other kind of concerning viruses that I felt just as a community we needed to watch. Well, this one ended up being something a lot bigger than I thought it would be uh, when I set out that tweet in, in January. And I, I think no one in their wildest dreams thought a million Americans would die from this. But I, I think that might be what the number is now or will be. That was Dr. Jim Ireland, head of the Honolulu Emergency Medical Services Department, reflecting on how his staff has dealt with the rising 911 calls throughout the pandemic and now during this very busy holiday season. For today's Backyard Quiz, we tested your knowledge of Herman Melville. Outside of literary circles, the author was not well known during his lifetime. In fact, his most famous literary work, Moby Dick, sold only 3,000 copies during his entire life. Melville's importance grew after his death. Generations uh, later appreciated his commentary on diversity, justice, pride, and sharing. These ideas were demonstrated by the crew on the Nantucket whaling ship in Moby Dick, Aboard uh, Captain Ahab's ship were sailors hailing from India to China to Madagascar to Polynesia. They spoke a common pidgin language. Melville himself spent time on land in our islands in both Lahaina and Honolulu. While here, he worked as a pin setter in a bowling alley and a bookkeeper, which are the answers to today's backyard quiz. Melville's stay was, however, very brief, just a mere four months before He joined the U.S. Navy and toured the South Pacific and South America. And congrats to Mike from Kaimu Key. You are today's winner. And that's the quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to TalkBack at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from SEEKS, the school for examining essential questions of sustainability, a public charter middle school celebrating 10 years of serving Honolulu families. Learn more at seeqs.org. When close-knit doesn't come close to describing your relationship with your relatives, the holiday season can be complicated. I'm Anita Rao. Join me for stories of broken and healed bonds between parents, children, and siblings. It's Estranged, a special from Embodied and North Carolina Public Radio. Beginning Friday morning at 11. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Bonnie Rice and the Rice Partnership, a full-service wealth management team rooted in Hawaii, committed to a customized, integrated approach with a global outlook. 
thericepartnership.com. mother who was told her son may not survive about with rat lungworm disease wrote a book about the experience. Kay Howe is hopeful that it will spur a change in attitude about the need to educate the public and the um, medical community at large about its diagnosis and treatment. The book is entitled Year of the Rat, Disease, Deception, and Discovery in Paradise. It begins in 2008, the year that her adult son Graham was diagnosed with the parasite. Her story was featured in a recent documentary broadcast on PBS Hawaii this month. It focused on the difficulty of diagnosis and the latest treatments available. Howe, who now lives in Colorado, says she remains grateful that her son survived the ordeal, though he will never be the same. It's been a long, long, long road, and we're grateful for where he is, but he still will never be what he was if he had not gotten this disease. There's a lot of different things that still need to be addressed. It's still very difficult to get a timely diagnosis. You heard Dr. Vernon Ansel talk about the importance of even starting treatment before you have a diagnosis. And that's great. That's absolutely what you have to do. But we still have problems with getting doctors to recognize that. And then one of the big difficulties, too, is the treatment with albendazole. That's really critical. But if you don't have a doctor's diagnosis yet, trying to get your insurance company to pay for that is probably going to be quite difficult. And the cost of albendazole has gone up. It used to be very inexpensive. It's an old drug. You can get it cheap in many other countries. But one dose runs about $600, and you need to have two of them a day for two weeks. So, you know, the cost of that is prohibitive for a lot of people, and if your insurance company's not going to pay for that, that's a real difficulty. Another thing that we've run into is one person who did get prescribed albendazole, and this was actually one of the women that teaches in the course that I teach. We teach a professional development education course to K-12 teachers in Hawaii, and they work with a curriculum that I developed that's research-driven and, and, you know, very good. But one of the teachers, and she knows everything about rat longworms, so she was probably infected, she figures, from a commercial food establishment. There was no albendazole to be found in Hawaii. So that's a problem, you know, and this is what Dr. Ansel says. The clock is ticking with this. So if you have to wait two days for a shipment of albendazole to show up, these parasites move fast. So that's a problem. Share with our listeners how bad it was for your son when he got it. Well, I was working out of the country, and so I flew home. He had the severe skin sensitivity in his legs. He was, you know, in a lot of pain that way, but they were looking at releasing him. And then a few days after I got back, he just took a really bad turn for the worst. And finally, you know, could hardly lift his hands, couldn't lift his legs. The physical therapist said, this is not the same person I worked with two days ago. And then he went into a coma. And, you know, they flew us to Honolulu and to Queens Hospital and looked at his MRI and saw worm tracks in his brain and basically said, you know, his brain damage was too severe to expect him to live. But he did live. So we had, he did live, yeah. Well, mom kind of tried everything. And so when they flew us back to Gilo Medical Center, I simply got a chair that asked for a chair that turned into a bed. And I was there for the entire time until he was released. I did not go home. And that probably saved his life because he had other hospital-acquired infections. He was taken out of ICU and put on the nursing floor. They were understaffed. He got overdosed on pain meds. There were a number of things, other infections that he got and that kind of thing. And the nurses were really grateful that I was there. I learned how to do a lot of the suctioning and did a lot of the care for him and helped them out. And nurses were great. The nurse aides were wonderful. But it was traumatic. That's all I can say. This is a traumatic disease. And one of the things that we really want to have changed is the CDC 
they continue to say recovery is generally two to eight weeks. It can be longer. There can be complications. And they still, on their website, say there is no treatment. That's not true. Well, you've just written this book to really share your experience with others and hope that there are better outcomes. I would hope so. You know, one of the reasons I wrote the book, one, is to help educate people because this is a really nasty, horrible disease, and you may never have the quality of life that you had before if you contract this. But there were things that the state of Hawaii did that they just kept pushing this aside and pushing it aside. And so now it's gotten to be, you know, I mean, it, it really does correlate with the arrival of the semi-slug, which is a very effective carrier of the rat longworm, carries high parasite loads, has unusual behavior, gets into people's houses, climbs into your drink, gets into your food. Back in 2007, there were studies done showing this particular slug species was running at 78% infection level. Rats were running at almost 100% infection level. This was in the Pune area. And they should have initiated, you know, a program in that area and really encouraging people to start to control the host organisms, the rats and the slugs and snails. Instead, it was looked at that most of the people getting it had a backyard garden and they were eating out of a backyard garden. When people started getting this, I became the hotline and people would call me and people would call me and I was just like, where's the education? I was teaching in schools. I was doing school gardens with kids. Where's the education and where's the research? And that's why I went back to school. We asked the Department of Health to work with us. I had this idea for developing an education program because I was a teacher, because I do know IPM, because I do know place-based education. And we said this is a win-win in order to be able to help educate families, get people to start controlling host animals and that kind of thing. They didn't want to have any part of it, and it wasn't from our island. Our epidemiologist was really trying, but it really was the head epidemiologist. And she was fired after the way she handled COVID. She should have been fired the way she handled rat lungworm disease. Some people might worry because there's a lot of emphasis now on food security and backyard gardening, and lots of people took backyard gardening up during COVID. So you just want to get the word out to be careful and wash your greens thoroughly. And I want to do more than that. I want our governor now, Dr. Josh Green, obviously was from Hawaii Island. We met with him many years ago when an older woman died of this on Hawaii Island. Dr. Susan Jarvie and I met with him and he gave the opening talk at our 2020 International Rat Longworm Workshop that the Dr. Jarvie Lab held in Hilo. And I would really like to have Josh Green look at how this was handled and look at how the Department of Health and the CDC can do better. That's really what I want. This should have been stopped, or at least the education of the general public should have started more than 10 years ago, and it didn't. There's a number of things that are really wrong with the way things have been handled. And I would hope that our next governor, Josh Green, might take a look at this. I have sent him a copy of my book. I sent Kai Kahele a copy of my book. Kai Kahele was a champion trying to help us get funding. Josh Green was a champion for us, but there's things that need to be done better. Obviously, it's important for people to wash their greens. That's without a doubt incredibly important. But there have been, and I've been witness to them, cases that have happened from food establishments. And we have to look at this differently. And it may involve calling CDC in and getting them to really realize this is a serious disease. I can't tell you how many people I know that cannot work, including my son. He has not worked, and he was 24. He was working before he got this. The financial burden on this is, is horrific. And when the people have been affected, look at the CDC's website and see this, oh, you recover in two to eight weeks when none of them have. There needs to be something different, and it's not just wash your greens. There needs to be something different, and there needs to be a lot more emphasis and research, education. The education program we run is fantastic. We get great responses from teachers. Not mm -hmm. only do we teach about that lungworm, we teach them how to use ArcGIS technology. 
We teach them about invasive species, other public health diseases, but we struggle for funding. That's your message, is that the new leadership will take a long, hard look at this and put more funding in and make a concerted effort for prevention. I mean, in in the documentary, it was nice to see somebody from the FDA involved. We need more than just state help on this. This is a real problem. That was Kay Howe, author of the book Year of the Rat, about her family's journey dealing with rat lungworm disease. The book is available now on Amazon. That wraps it up for us today. Tomorrow, hopeful for rail, but brace yourselves. The worst in construction detours could be yet to come. Got feedback? Call our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And reminder, all of our shows are archived. And you can find the podcast version of the conversation on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.